0: Welcome to Group Talk, four shows, one podcast from the small group network, focusing on topics relevant to small group ministries. Whether you're in a church of 100 or 10,000, whether you're a volunteer or staff, we want to support, encourage, and equip you to lead well. So relax, listen, and enjoy Here to There with Carolyn Kiketa. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Here to There, where we learn how to move from here, where we are now. To there, to where God is calling us. On today's program, we discuss the critical issues related to mental health and the church. More specifically, how we as small group leaders, who are not mental health experts, and our typical small groups, which are not designed as support groups for mental health issues, can still support and come alongside people in our groups who struggle with these issues. Just a note to keep in mind, I taped this interview with Dr. David Wang back in February before COVID, so you won't hear any references to the pandemic or to its effects on our churches and our communities. The questions that Dr. Wang addresses and the insights he offers on these mental health issues are even more relevant and valuable today in the context of the current pandemic and the huge emotional toll that it has taken on everyone, but especially on those who are already struggling with mental health issues. And in recent months, we've seen reports of dramatic increases in the percentage of new people who are struggling with mental distress, such as anxiety, depression, isolation, loneliness, grief, I mean, so many things. It's a lot that we're all dealing with. And that means that our churches and our small groups are also dealing with it. So we need to become better equipped to love and care for those affected by mental illness. And part of that is assessing when people need more help um, than our groups can offer, and then how to navigate through those waters together. So I hope this conversation is encouraging to you and is helpful for you and your ministry. So a couple of years ago, I heard Dr. David Wang speak at a conference on mental health, and it was the first, um, Conference of that type I've been to and the church. And so I was very impressed by his breadth of knowledge on the topic, but even more by his pastoral heart. And as he fielded really hard questions, he responded with so much truth and grace and just really helpful, practical tips. And so these topics don't have clean, easy answers. um, And they're really messy for us to navigate through. And he was so honest about the challenges of it that um, I just really wanted him on the program. So I have to confess, Mm -hmm. I've been pursuing and very persistent for a while now. Um, and I don't think I've ever chased someone down so hard. So I'm so glad you said yes. Thank you for for saying yes. And so I've been waiting a while to have this conversation. So thank you.
1: Aww. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. And this topic is something that's so near and dear to my heart. I uh, wear a lot of different hats in any given week. I'm um a professor at Biola University. We have a a school of clinical psychology called Rosemead School of Psychology, and I'm a uh, professor there, so I train future Christian psychologists. Uh, I oversee a bunch of research on uh, spiritual development and spiritual formation and trauma, and I'm also a um, part-time pastor of spiritual formation at a local congregation um, in Fullerton, California. And about 15 years ago, I um, started off uh, as a a college pastor at the church that I grew up in, uh, in San Jose, California. And that's actually how I got my uh, vision into uh, pursuing mental health as well.
0: Oh, that's so great. Well, you you gave the bio, so I don't have to, which is great. <laughs> He's being really modest. He actually has a very long resume. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to have the conversation with you is because you understand both areas, both psychological and mental health um, field, but also uh, the church world. And as a spiritual formation pastor, you get what people are wrestling with, and you know what small groups—I'm sure you have small groups at your church, and they're probably that's dealing right. with these issues as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's right so well so let's start off with kind of the landscape of mental health and mental illness um and what you know why it affects every church pretty much
1: mm, yeah well um mental health and well, uh, mental illness they're both uh conditions that are very common and prevalent in society and um And in a similar way, they're just as prevalent um, within church communities as well. Um, There's some recent statistics uh, coming out of the American Psychiatric Association that suggests that uh, nearly one in five individuals or adults in the U.S., they experience some form of uh, mental illness. And uh, one in 24, uh, about 4%, has uh, serious mental illness. And these are prevalence rates uh, over the span of just one year. So if you kind of consider uh, the number of people who might have encountered personally Mm -hmm. mental illness at some point in their lifetime, uh, the the prevalence is even uh, significantly greater. And when we think of our church communities, which are, you know, representative of the neighborhoods and the communities that we all live in, uh, they're they're just as prevalent.
0: But then why, historically, though, has been such a stigma and a reluctance in the church to address these issues? Because they are so prevalent, they're only becoming more prevalent. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, well, it's, it's a complicated uh, situation. I think there's many kind of theological, kind of um, personal uh, biases that many Christians and many Christian communities sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly might kind of endorse mm-hmm. that make it Difficult for those of us who are Christian, who do struggle with mental illness, to actually come forth and and share uh, our experiences.
0: Well, and let's just go right there. Let's just talk sure. about what some of those some of those um, perceptions, <laughs> assumptions, myths, um, spiritual doctrine, maybe for some churches. What are some of those things? Like, let's say, like the top ones you hear often related to mental illness in the and the church, and why we're so reluctant.
1: Yeah, um, well, I really like what um, Ed Stetzer has to say on the topic. He's um, the head of the Billy Graham Center over at Wheaton College, and they host uh, annual conferences mm-hmm. on various issues facing pastors and churches. And, in fact, I just uh, spoke in one of his conferences a couple months ago on pastoral burnout, which is oh. an important men- mental health issue as sure. well. Do you Uh, That many pastors face. And uh, I think the year before, he uh, addressed the topic of uh, mental illness in church communities. And uh, some of the ideas that he brought up are ideas uh, that I have seen uh, quite commonly uh, within Christian uh, communities. So, one example of this might be this idea that uh, mental illness uh, might be a sign of personal weakness. You know, this idea that, you know, we might be feeling anxious or feeling. Um, depressed um, because we just haven't sucked it up and powered through, you know, right. right. uh, or even worse, there, there could be this kind of assumption that maybe it's uh, some sort of character flaw, maybe it's because I'm not, uh, you know, lacking, if I'm lacking dis- uh, discipline or right. I'm not, you know, using my willpower to the full extent, I'm not like taking every thought captive. You
0: know, <laughs> well, especially when of. you layer on the spiritual side, I think, and what I've heard growing up in, in churches um, where mental health was never discussed. The idea was that if you just prayed more, if That's you just right. read the Bible more, then this would just not be an issue. Rejoice always. Like mm-hmm. why can't you just rejoice always? And and that just puts an additional burden on people that are struggling
1: that's right and and I think that is a, uh, a direction that we might take when we uh, that when many of our church communities understand mental illness that it may not only be a sign that you know of uh, a weakness in our character but as you said that there might be a sign of weakness in our faith that maybe we're depressed and anxious because we're not trusting Jesus enough you know maybe we're not praying hard enough or something like that and and interestingly I mean how I originally became a psychologist it actually Actually, came out of my experiences as a um, college pastor, and um, I, I loved working with college students, uh, with young young people. And I find that um, with our youth, if you uh, oftentimes, if you provide them with a pastor or of some sort of adult figure that's present in their lives and that truly cares for them, you'd be so surprised how much of their personal junk they're open to sharing with you. Right. You know. And as I was a college pastor, I would have uh, a lot of my kids over at at my place. We'd play video games, you know, make sandwiches, (laughs) talk about, you know, girl and guy drama and all that. And then over the course of just uh, sharing life together, they would share about all these emotional hurts that come from their families, uh, you know, hurt from divorce. And and I remember having this uh, really... God just blessed us with such a thriving kind of prayer, uh, he, emotional healing ministry in our in our uh, church and in that youth group and college group, and and I remember thinking to myself that you know we've we've gone so far, and God has kind of gave us wonder, wonderful breakthroughs, and yet at the same time I knew that. We, I still wanted to go further, but I didn't know how to get there. Mm. And, I, and I felt frustrated with my lack of training. I didn't know what the process looked like. I didn't know how to accompany someone through the whole process right. of emotional healing. And, and that's when uh, the, the idea popped in my mind to um, pursue further study, uh, to, to kind of observe and learn how we can actually, uh, like the mechanics of actually mm-hmm. helping someone heal emotionally.
0: Yeah so do do you think though that, that sometimes there's an overlap between the emotional issues or the mental health issues and then also some spiritual issues it feels like sometimes could they like feed into each other
1: Absolutely. I feel like um, when we look at mental health, especially, but I think this would apply to so much of uh, other facets of, of life, um, I, I prefer to look at things from a uh, bio, psycho, social, spiritual kind of way.
0: <laughs> this is why you're a professor. <laughs> That's a lot of hyphens.
1: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And the idea behind it is that, you know, the biology, the psychology, the the social life, the spiritual life, they're all created by God. And -hmm. they all overlap. And God is the Lord of all of them, you know. And and it's… I mean, conceptually, it might be helpful to think of them in isolation, but when we're actually living real life, they're all integrated in some form
0: or fashion. That's a really good point. It's much more holistic um, than... our, even our therapeutic culture. So it seems like we kind of go in one of two directions. We, in the church, so we either go, okay, these are mental health issues, so then we sideline them off to um, our, you know, care ministries, if you're fortunate enough in your church to have one, um, or to our volunteer counselors or therapists, or we kind of sideline the psychological issues there, and then we go, okay, we'll help you with the spiritual issues. Um, Mm. But because they are more holistic, it's just even harder for churches to know how to help people that show up um, with these symptoms. Um, and so, what, what are some things that, you know, that churches can do um, kind of more globally before we dial down to small groups that would help support people and families that are struggling with this?
1: Right. So, there is a ton of research literature that speaks to kind of the crucial um, contributions of social support. Mm. Uh, as it applies to recovery from mental illness. So I um, happen to do a lot of clinical work and research in the area of trauma and PTSD, like post-traumatic stress disorder. And within the trauma literature, there's actually empirical research that has found that a lack of social support, it actually predicted more strongly PTSD symptoms Mm. than other factors including the severity of the trauma event itself.
0: Wow that's really great news It means that we can actually help people
1: <laughs> right so I mean I mean this is kind of a, like a mind-blowing kind of uh, finding that even over and above how severe the trauma was originally like social support, actually predicts more powerfully uh, the degree mm. to which someone can recover. And it's it's also a very kind of um, hollowing and very kind of humbling uh, f- uh, a point as well, because it goes both ways. Um, mm. If we do social support well, It can be a tremendous resource and source of strength and support for people to recover. And on the flip side, if we don't do it well, and we actually, uh, what we call, if we kind of live out what we call negative social support, Mm -hmm. it actually can cause um, great damage among those of us who are suffering.
0: So what would be some examples of positive social support versus negative social support from your research? Yeah.
1: So um, positive social support, broadly defined, um, it's the kind of social support that makes us feel loved and mm-hmm. supported and that we're not alone. Mm-hmm. And negative social support, broadly defined, you know, defined, uh, is that social support that, uh, gives kind of an opposite reaction. It makes us feel judged and it mm. makes us feel alone. So sometimes when we feel blamed for what's going on, if we, mm. if other people doubt what we have to sh- uh, say, or mm. if we feel criticized by other people, you know, when, if people were to say, you know, hey, just, just stop feeling that way.
0: When they try to fix it, not- right. Instead exactly. of empathizing. Okay. <laughs>
1: Right. And that, that's a, that could be a form of uh, negative social support.
0: So it seems like even if you weren't dealing with mental health stuff, um, mm-hmm. both, the positive social support would be beneficial for anyone. That's kind of part of biblical community is to support and encourage great. and to walk alongside one another in times of trouble as well as times of joy. So I guess is it just heightened at a, a, a higher level when you're dealing with someone with trauma or mental health issues?
1: Absolutely. I think the principle would be the same for all humans, but I think they're especially kind of pronounced when it comes to people who are in acute mental conditions.
0: So when you talk about that, Dave, does it make a difference whether they're in a um, trauma support group? For example, we have a support group for uh, women who've experienced betrayal, um, mm-hmm. we have an addiction support group, but we have these, versus a typical small group, uh, which most of us, um, on probably the, most of our listeners run, which is regular people. We are not specially trained to help mm-hmm. with any particular trauma. Uh, we will have people that have experienced trauma in the group. For because it's a cross-section of the population in our mm. churches and in our co- in our communities, but um, we're not isolating it as a support group for a particular thing. We're actually just integrating to the whole. Does it make a difference in terms of being helpful to the person dealing with the issue if they're in one type of a support group versus a regular, let's just call it regular community small group?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, well, uh, for one, I am a huge fan of those um, uh, kind of— uh, Condition-specific support groups within churches, mm-hmm. uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, yes. has a very strong Christian, you know, yes. roots for sure. And um, when I uh, worked in substance abuse in the past, um, like research and clinical work, um, a lot of uh, a lot of secular psychologists help have kind of a bias against AA because of the mm. spiritual kind of elements integrated into the process. And um, and the, the funny thing is that so many people have tried to develop alternative kind of treatments for substance abuse, like without kind of the, the spiritual component. And we, after decades of this kind of work and research, we still haven't found anything mm. better. You know, it's—granted, AA is not um, perfect. There's limitations to it. But as far as we can tell, it still remains one of the gold standard treatments for um, substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful model of, like, mutual accompaniment, you know, that I feel like— the rest of the church can learn greatly from. Oh, for sure, you know, especially so,
0: around accountability, around humility. I mean, try. I mean, it's got. It's built on biblical principles, which may be why. <laughs>
1: it's yes, so, absolutely, it's lasted
0: and is so effective.
1: And and I love this idea within this notion that I'm always going to be struggling with this Mm -hmm. the rest of my life, you know, And, and that just clears the way for me to just accompany you through the ups and downs and to come in with the mentality that I'm here with you for the long term. And uh, this is something that we need to be humble about. This is something that we need to attend to over and over again. And it's not something that I'm just going to be surprised, like, oh my goodness, this happened again. How could you, <laughs> you know? And um, right. and turn into kind of a, a you know, like I, I can fix this, and that, and that's it. And and I think again, I, the rest of the Christian community, we have so much to learn from that because mm. I feel like so much of our spirituality is premised upon quick fixes and. Yeah. We aren't equipped to kind of accompany someone over the long term.
0: I think we've gotten better at that, but I absolutely agree. I think we've gotten better because we've now understood the value of relationships more, um, Mm -hmm. and the loneliness epidemic and all the disconnectedness. I think we're better at empathy because now it's in the popular media. I mean, all of those trends help us, but say you had, um, you know, someone in your church who, um, was a recovering alcoholic and the choice for them was, you know, to go to AA or to go to a regular small group, um, what would you say? What would you recommend?
1: Yeah, I feel like if, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors to consider, but um, one of the first things I would look at at is uh, the degree of their sobriety Mm -hmm. at the moment um, and the amount of support that they have uh, specifically to their struggles with substances. Um, If their struggles are quite Uh, pronounced or acute, then I think, uh, you know, something like AA or Celebrate Recovery, I hear great things about Mm -hmm. them as well. Uh, They might be a great entry point into a uh, church community. might be a great place to start.
0: So okay, so it's a great place to start. So I want to. Um, this is a question that comes up a lot in among mm. small group pastors. Is okay? How do you know if someone is in a place where they are healthy enough or have managed their mental illness enough? Uh, maybe they are now taking medication more regularly and it's evened out. Or mm. I don't know what language to use. So forgive me if I use the wrong <laughs> language. No. this is isn't my field. But um, how do you know if they're for lack of a better term, healthy enough or functional enough to be in a regular small group where people aren't necessarily trained, um, yeah. versus someone who may be more acute, as you said, or maybe um, need more of that support. Like, how do you decide if someone is functional enough and it would be helpful to them and that they and helpful to the group? Like, that's yes. a million dollar question for small group pastors.
1: Yeah, and and I'll, I'll take a stab at this. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's. Uh, I mean, we can have you know, three or four podcasts on this one question. Um, But let me start with uh, kind of uh, the foundational belief that um, absolutely people with mental health issues can be um, and should be part of a regular small group. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this comes from just the the biblical vision of family. You know, they're created in the image of God just as we are. We're all in the family of God and uh, just as a healthy family doesn't exclude or kind of isolate those members of us who are struggling i mean there are unique cases that we have to adjust to as well um but but the goal and the heart is always uh, for us to be together and for us to thrive together and support each other so so that's kind of like the the overall vision uh of mm. uh, you know of where i uh, come from um with that being said um It needs to be discerned, obviously, from like a case-by-case basis, and there's a lot of factors for us to look into, including, you know, things like the severity of one's mental illness, the nature of one's mental illness. And I also think we need to consider the composition of the rest of the small group as well. So it's kind of a question of, well, is you know, is is it good for the small group, you know, for the person struggling with mental illness? But I think just as important is the question, is the small group good for that person who's struggling with mental That's illness?
0: That's a really group? good point because we do focus on the person entering the group and this is where the leader ends up in a quandary because they have to care for all 12 people in their group and one person nice. especially someone with mental illness may end up taking a disproportionate amount of energy and time right. um, and then what about the other members? I That ends up being kind of sticky unless the other members are also on board with, mm. with the family concept, which I love. I haven't heard it phrased quite that way, and I think that really sets the the foundation well because that's biblical. Mm. Um, but, but I think for the leader, it's really hard because how much time and space do you give to one person? Right. Um, in a family, to your point, David, in a family system, if I have a family and I have a, a, a kid with special needs, mm. that kid can't help but take um, a lot more time and energy than a typical kid. That's just how reality is, and so I feel like, is that okay for a small group to kind of be like, hey, this is this guy's part of our family, and this is what's going to require, or do you kind of think about the perspective of the members? Like, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I I want a, you know, I want a happy, easy group or whatever it is they're <laughs> looking for.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, all of the above. I feel like um, <laughs> <the> this <laughs> this notion of consent is important because mm-hmm. there are conditions where, like you said, um, it is going to be a high investment that's going to be long term, and uh, and sometimes people come to these life groups with uh, many important needs themselves that might be overlooked, and um, and there are certainly cases where it would be appropriate for a small group to not incorporate. Uh, someone uh, with uh, these special needs. And I think if that's the case, then we want to make sure that there's systems in place within the larger church context to ensure that those individuals have those uh, support networks and uh, ministries to uh, and, and adequate coverage as well. Um, so it's uh, definitely kind of a case-by-case basis uh, and group-by-group basis kind of thing.
0: And that's, yeah, which is why it's so messy. Um, but are there uh, certain types of mental health issues that uh, you see more often in church that's really manageable for people um, in groups? Like I'm thinking of like, it seems like everybody, or at least every millennial I hear um, sort of struggles mm. with anxiety, apparently. This has become like a hot <laughs> thing. My daughter told me that if you don't struggle with anxiety, you're weird on a college campus. <laughs> so that seems to be like a catch-all or depression. Yeah. And there seems to be certain ones that kind of are not so disruptive to a a group that, um, social support could really help with versus something that's a, a much more clinical case, um, mm. like borderline disorder or something that's really, you, you would need some expertise. And uh, so do, are there, are there, um, uh, types of issues that you would be more inclined to say, "Hey, let's try this out in a group on a case. Yeah. By case?
1: yeah um, great question. Um, I think, uh, and, you know, there, there's a lot of variability even within the conditions. So, you know, not all people who struggle with depression are, are sure. the same and, you know, not yes. all people who, you know, struggle with anxiety, are the same. so you you know, even within each of these diagnostic kind of categories, there's quite a lot of variation. So, um, so some of the, uh, considerations and factors that I look into as I'm making kind of an implicit judgment about, you know, maybe I'll, let's, let's go take, Let's go forward and and uh, incorporate this individual. Uh, one of the first uh, things that I look for is the amount of insight that they have over um, their condition, the amount of insight they have over uh, their uh, over themselves. And so their
0: self-awareness then of the person with the mental illness?
1: Exactly. Okay. You know, so if they're familiar with the fact that they're depressed or familiar with mm-hmm. the fact they're anxious and they're open to talking about it if uh, if it pops up it's not this pink elephant in the room that no one's allowed Mm -hmm. to talk about and if they're even i mean it's not that we're expecting perfection because none of us are perfect even especially those mental illness. but if they're the type of individual that you know they they might act out temporarily but then uh they're able to kind of contain themselves and then afterwards go, oh, this is, this is what happened. Um, mm-hmm. To take those steps to repair and to kind of learn from those experiences, then that's, that's a really positive sign that um, would uh, suggest that they would be a wonderful small group member. Um, and this idea of self-awareness and self-knowledge, I mean, a lot of these concepts are true not just for those of us who struggle with mental illness. They're true for everyone in our churches and everyone in our small groups. Yeah. There's uh, John Calvin, uh, in the beginning of uh, his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he talks about uh, what we call theologians call the double knowledge: uh, how hmm. the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self, how they go hand in hand, hmm. um, and how as we know uh, more and more uh, God and His holiness, we kind of uh, naturally uh, uh, become more and more aware of our own nature uh, in the process. Um, and, um, so, so I feel like this kind of idea of insight and self-knowledge, not only helpful when it comes to mental illness, but is crucial even when it comes to spiritual formation as well.
0: Problems. That's true. That no, that's really great. I, I just think of all these uh, cases and groups where someone may be struggling with something, and they'll say, "Hey, you know, I'm bipolar and I'm on meds." And um, every so often, you'll see this kind of behavior from me, and the group is like totally fine with that, um, and they learn from it, and and they get blessed by it. Um, versus mm-hmm. someone who's unaware, and they blow up the group, and we we've, we've had those cases too. Yes, that's they're right. They're <laughs> unaware or they can't see themselves, and um, and the leader can't call them out on it. Uh, It feels like a minefield. And then next thing you know, there's nobody left in the group because the leader hasn't addressed it. It's like, that's not good for the group member either. Right. Right. To allow them to run amok like that, that doesn't um, help them. But how do leaders put boundaries in place for that? Again, knowing that they're not mental health professionals.
1: Yeah. And and even for mental health professionals, a lot of times we might be able to forecast something like that a little bit early, earlier than typical individuals. But we also oftentimes can't tell what we have in front of us until we see the effects, you know, so. Um, That's
0: I, so disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like if we could stick a therapist in every small group that we would be home free.
1: <laughs> Hopefully that should be helpful, um, but but I, I don't think it's going to be a perfect kind of guarantee um, that these things won't ever pop up. Uh, a lot of times we don't know what we have on our hands until after some of the damage is already done, where you know an entire small group just feels exhausted and depleted. You know that's when we start realizing, like, oh, maybe are there some questions we need to ask and discuss because there's something wrong here. Um, yeah,
0: which yeah. is almost, which is almost too late, but then how do you have that conversation? Do you have the conversation with the member? Um, first it's just, let's just put a scenario. And this is a common enough one where there's a member sure. who has something, we don't know what it is. <laughs> we can not diagnose it. Um, mm-hmm. but they're being really difficult. Maybe they're just, they just are going through a hard thing. They're more needy than usual. Uh, maybe they have a mental illness, maybe they're off meds, who knows, but there's an issue. The leader, um, then hesitates because do they have that one-on-one conversation with that person. And then sometimes I have actually advised, and if I've done this wrong now I have to go back and fix it, but I've Mm -hmm. actually advised the leader at times in a group that's been together a while where there's a high level of trust to have a conversation with the group members Mm -hmm. apart from, apart from the person and to say, Hey, this is what's going on with um, Joe and let's, um, you know, let's be here for him. This is what it would look like. If this is hard, too hard for you, I understand. But kind of let him in on it, rather than mm-hmm. uh, rather than um, just feel like this is the leader's problem to manage. And it has worked at times where you have a mature enough group, they'll they'll right. sign on and buy in together. But they, the leader, typically pushes back because they're like, "Oh, that feels so disloyal," and like I'm gossiping. Yeah. And gossip is sin. And and I'm like, "It's mm-hmm. I, I don't think it, it's gossiping." I, I, how do you feel about like that sort of advice or that scenario?
1: Yeah, I think that's sound. Um, and as you said, I mean, when it comes to human working with humans, it's, uh, I mean, there is no perfect kind of solution or equation that we can follow to, you know, guarantee the perfect results every single time. But I, I really like the principle of, um, kind of, uh, openness and of, um, transparency. And, and I find that, you know, one of the greatest ways that uh, a scenario like this can be destructive in a small group is when no one talks about it and yeah. everyone feels like they're the only ones who right. are carrying this burden. Like maybe everyone else is a good Christian and they just don't <laughs> mind and they sure. won't, they say the perfect things, but I'm the only one who feels frustrated and feels depleted. And and a lot of times when the, the leaders of a small group have the courage to kind of start off with maybe a confession. Like, Hey, you know, mm-hmm. this is just how I'm feeling. I am struggling with this. I don't know if this is the right way to feel, but this is just how I feel. And for other small group members who, who are trustworthy, oftentimes you'll find a response that is validating and mm-hmm. normalizing and, and, and other people will feel like, you know, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I feel the same way. And, um, and then the next step, uh, that you know, these people can, uh, that those of us who feel this way can uh, take would be, well, you know, what can we do in terms of next steps to help this individual? Mm-hmm. Right. And before we get there, I, and this is, I, I think this is something that a lot of a lot of people in general, including Christians, struggle with, is that we need to respect our limitations. Yes. Um, We cannot save everyone just by our own strength and our own resources. And that's true for mental health professionals just as much as it's true for uh, any uh, non-mental professional.
0: And I want to underscore that. I want our listener to hear that because I know that our group leaders and especially our, our small group point leaders are so eager to help, and yeah. um, they sometimes don't know their limitations. And it's really okay to say, "I can't handle this. I, This is too mm-hmm. much for me," um, and I have to always tell our leaders over and <laughs> over, "It's okay if this is beyond um, your capacity and beyond your group's for capacity. That's it's okay." Um, and we have, you know, we can bring other resources to bear on the issue and to not let them be afraid of saying that. that somehow they failed
1: because mm. they'll be kind of
0: embarrassed about it. Sometimes they feel like they failed because they can't help or fix um, or keep the group together in the face of somebody who's blowing it up because they just have can't manage it. Um, so I, I love that, that kind word to say part of the boundary, part of being a good leader is knowing what you can't do, uh, not just knowing what you can do.
1: Yeah, and it requires this uh, a certain kind of humility and maturity mm-hmm. to be able to accept that reality.
0: Yeah, hey, I think it, the hard part is I just feel like it's not being like a good Christian to, yeah. you know, to ask someone to leave and let's go there. That's a hard conversation <laughs> to say to someone, um, and usually that conversation gets kicked up to the point leader level where they're right. like. Can you help me tell this person who's not healthy enough to be in a group right now? And that's kind of language we use for better or for worse right now. And then we try to bring yeah. some resources along with it. Um, or we ask them to go to maybe like in the earlier scenario with someone recovering from alcohol um, abuse that... You know, maybe right now you're you know, a season where you're more tempted um, and your your disease is kind of becoming more progressed, so perhaps you do both. Mm-hmm. You come here, yeah. but you also keep your other community um, that will help you because they understand your struggle that oh, our group can't because we, we don't have that struggle. Um, so right. I, I think... But that conversation is always hard because, and we've had to blow up sometimes where they feel really hurt. Mm. Um, they feel like you know rejected by the church um, mm. because now you know small group is standing in for the church, right? Yeah. And then they're standing in maybe for God. I mean, heaven forbid, yeah. but like that, those layers get played placed on. And it just feels really um, risky. So, how do you? How would you advise us to have that conversation where where the person? Is too disruptive and too difficult and not self-aware enough to um, be in a regular group.
1: Yeah, and that, I think, is such a helpful and common kind of situation that happens in churches. And kind of going back to that biopsychosocial-spiritual model I was talking about earlier, I think a lot of times how this shows up within church contexts is that people come to church with a history and a bag, some baggage of uh, hurt from families, hurt yes. from close friends where they felt betrayed, when they've had relationships with certain authority figures that betrayed their trust and kind of manipulated them or kind of took advantage of them. Mm-hmm. And then when they come to church, um, it's re- sometimes really hard to not Uh, to to contain that kind of distrust in Mm -hmm. your church relationships. So, a lot of times they come into church with kind of, it's almost as if they're expecting the church leaders to uh, replay the same kind of, you know, um, abusive dynamics that they've experienced Mm -hmm. earlier in life, or, you know, when something that looks like they're being rejected happens at church, it just kind of attaches to some past rejections and past abuse. Uses, and it kind of all becomes, you know, this jumbled, you know, mess. Uh, it's all kind right. of the same in their mind. And and a lot of times it is it is exactly how you describe it. It's a minefield. We don't know exactly what's in a person's history and in a person's mind. So it's quite possible for us to, you know, if such a thing existed, for us to say the perfect words <laughs> And still, for it to be interpreted in the worst possible yes. way, and for the outcome to go to the worst possible case, and and it can still go there even if we handle a situation kind of quote unquote perfectly. You know, it's actually
0: kind of freeing to know that, to know that we can pray like crazy, we can do our very very best, mm-hmm. uh, but have it still not be received. Well, we can only control what what communication we're delivering. We can't control the receiving. I mean, that's a God thing. Right.
1: Right. right. And I feel like so, so many of us in ministry, we're carrying the burden of so many things that are just outside of our control.
0: Why do we yeah. do that? Why do we do that? <laughs> what is wrong with that's, us?
1: <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> that's
0: what I'll be part two next year. I'll have to put myself on your calendar next year and go, why are we so dumb? Why do we keep carrying the stuff that God's not giving us to carry? Because <laughs> we want to make things things better, so I, yeah. So if you are training small group leaders on, uh, you know, how to be inclusive, how not to be afraid of different mental health issues that is that are going to walk in, because this is just what's in our our communities. Um, how to not be afraid of that at the same time? How to manage it? Um, to the best of our ability, like what would you say in a training in a nutshell? <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, well, there's, there's a
1: couple things. I mean, I think of course, you know, what we're doing right now is a super helpful where we want to uh, raise awareness and talk more about mental illness. We want to uh, learn more about it, like each of us doing our own research. Um, so that At the very least we can kind of recognize some common forms of mental illness when it's there and so that we um, uh, know when to seek out additional help um, uh, in those cases where uh, help is definitely needed and help is prudent. Um, From a theological perspective, I think that what would be really helpful for many of our churches is to reclaim the other half of half of scripture that we don't preach on you know mm. the the not happy not the not so happy part of scripture <laughs> so
0: the non prosperity gospel side
1: <laughs> yes you know and i mean we we don't i don't know if people realize this but um someone's actually done research on the psalms of the bible and these are kind of the original songs and worship songs of uh, yeah. that are codified into scripture and um i think this uh, a researcher by the name of Glenn Premberton. he found that over 50% of the psalms in the Bible are actually psalms of lament.
0: Yes, this is true.
1: And when you look at the the top, you know, five or top ten most, uh, you know, top one hundred most commonly su- uh, sung worship songs in church, he contrasted that with how uh, with the observation that less than five percent of the praise songs, the modern praise songs that we mm-hmm. come, most commonly sing, can qualify as psalms of lament. You know, oh, or, interesting. Or songs that they tend to be kind of songs of celebration and songs of victory, which certainly have their place right. within the Christian narrative. But, uh, but we've really missed out and lost out on the, the place, the rightful place of negative emotions in mm. the Christian life. I, I uh, grew up in Northern California, and um, the, one of the Christian ra- radio stations that I grew up listening to was K-Love. You know? Oh, and, we have
0: that in L.A., too. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I love Caleb. Um <laughs> Grew up with it. Wonderful ministry, and and they have. Uh, I think they're uh, at least one of their the old motto for K-Love is you know positive, encouraging K-Love.
0: Yes, they still say this. <laughs> this has been around a long time, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 I um and I like that idea. And as a, a pastor and as a psychologist, I, I would love for them to kind of add a few more words after that too. <laughs> Because uh, sometimes it's tempting to feel like, well, to be positive and to be encouraging means that it's Christian, or to be Christian means to be positive and encouraging all the time, and that's actually not biblical. Um, so, uh, to be sad, to be in grief, to be uh, angry, to be uh, you know, to be experiencing these negative emotions they're just as Christian as the positive ones, and they're just in parts of the Bible that we don't preach about very much, like books like Lamentations and Jeremiah and Hosea. And when you even look at the, the life of Christ and you look at, if, if you did a study of all the, the range of emotions and, and thoughts and feelings that Jesus had, you would see a very balanced kind of uh, set of emotions between positive and negative. Jesus isn't Positive and encouraging all the time. <laughs>
0: well, the, the Sermon on the Mount certainly is not, and the Beatitude yeah. certainly is not. Right. Um, but you're right. I think that—and it's interesting, because um, my senior pastor and I, we had a conversation a while back, and we're talking about which sermons require um, have him in the lobby the longest, where people line up and they want to be prayed for and talk about. And they're usually the sermons where he's addressing places of pain. Um, and that's that's where people live and that's where it is in small groups too but somehow even in group life we have this misperception that it's easier to rejoice with people who are rejoicing than it is to grieve with those who are grieving yes. um, and people come with baggage but we seem to prefer the baggage that is kind of more tidy baggage if I can say mm-hmm. or we've come through it so now we have a happy ending with a bow and so now we can talk about it versus <laughs> just the, the crazy mess in between or someone who's just been Having gone through just a really hard, hard life and had a lot of stuff happen, um, and it's just it makes things messy. And I think the more we embrace the mess, I'm right there with you. I, I actually really like the the Psalms of Lament. I actually like Ecclesiastes and Job. So that makes me a little bit strange. Um, I find it comforting to know that God's the same forever and that He gets that life is hard. Um, but I, I think that puts probably puts me a little bit of a minority so i think when when these issues come up in groups where i'm i struggle as a group's pastor is i want to equip our leaders to know their boundaries but also to err on the side of inclusion i think that's the awareness part that's that's been more of a cultural shift uh, for our churches, and how can we help with that? Like, I think, I love how you set the basis. This is a family model. You don't kick people out of your family, because Mm -hmm. they're difficult. Maybe some people do, but, you know, biblically, we wouldn't. Um, But how do you set that as a base? Because I know some of the churches and our listeners, that that's not the base. Um, And so, what are, like, baby steps to kind of start having a more inclusive model, not just around other issues of diversity, um, but around um, issues around mental illness which are just just more scary for us because we we just don't know as much about it.
1: Yes, good question. And and again, I think I'll I'll start. Uh, my answer by addressing some theological kind of considerations here, and um, and I think the first theological consideration is that a lot of times, uh, and as you were talking about how a lot of times, uh, like Christians, uh, us Christians, will tend to prefer those kind of uh, forms of suffering that kind of you can they're kind of more tidy. We can kind of wrap it up in a. They're boat. socially acceptable. Yes, yes. And, and, and I think alongside that line of thinking, we tend to read in and fit in people's experiences, especially when they're suffering from mental illness or trauma or whatnot, we we try to fit it in artificially into kind of the redemption narrative of Christ. Mm. You know, this idea of, you know, Good Friday is when Jesus died on the cross, and it was horrible and tragic, and there was tremendous suffering, but you know what? It was all worthwhile, because just three days later, (laughs) exactly. you know, Easter Sunday is just around the corner. And he resurrected from the dead, and like he, yeah. and and he, uh, you know, conquered death, and we have uh, victory with him. And and that's, I mean, I absolutely affirm that. That is at the core of our faith. Sure. And at the same time, theologically, we have to recognize that Christ's victory over death it's uh, it's not fully consummated yet. Right? right i mean it's right. it's done because he's resurrected from the dead but it's not right. fully consummated cuz christ hasn't returned yet right. and until he has returned we all of us uh, his family his, his body we're kind of we're in this in between stage where sure. we see god is active enough for us to know that he's there and he mm-hmm. gives us breakthroughs and even those breakthroughs, however miraculous might, they might be, they're, they're rarely, if ever, complete breakthroughs, Right. because that complete breakthrough doesn't come until Christ returns, you know? Right, so that's
0: the now and the not yet, yeah.
1: Exactly, yes. So... Um, So, kind of uh, creating spiritual Christian language for that already, but not yet, Mm -hmm. so that there's space for victory and celebration, but there's also space for a kind of grief that is ongoing um, on this side of heaven. So, for example, uh, as a pastor, uh, I'm part of the teaching rotation of my church, and last year I taught a four-week series on uh, lament. <laughs> and I. Is this um,
0: online somewhere?
1: Oh yeah, it's it's on our website. <laughs>
0: okay, so we'll li- we'll link it. We'll have to go back and look for the lament one. It'll be yeah. it'll be very popular.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. One Life City Church uh, okay. We're in Fullerton, California, and and what I did was you know I I did uh, I, I would t- I taught on lament you know uh, you know. Uh, ex- uh, kind of uh, did expository preaching from different passages of Scripture, but I also integrated a practical element. So, what I did was, um, after the, the teaching component of my message, I would invite different members of our congregation, uh, to kind of participate in sort of an interview, kind of like the interview we're having here. And, um, and I would interview, uh, people in our congregation that have, um, are experiencing some sort of pain and suffering of the sort that is not easily fixable. There's no short-term solution. So stuff like, you know, parents passing away early in life, like, There's no fix to that, you know, and this is something that, that we just have to live with for the rest of our lives. You know, there might be some good that comes out of it, but it's not one of those like clean, you know, happy endings. You know, this is for the, you know, everything was good, uh, all, all nice and good at the end. And, and what I invited our congregation members to do is to um, share an example, to kind of get into groups of two. So this might actually be more appropriate for small groups, to get into small groups of two or three and to share something in their own life that is kind of a long-standing source of pain as mm-hmm. well, um, that there isn't any kind of ready, ready fix for it. And then my assignment for the other two people in those small groups is just to say nothing.
0: <laughs> wow, that's that's hard.
1: And just... <laughs> bear witness to this other person's story and observe their heart in the process of them just bearing witness and not saying anything. And it is exactly what you talked about. It was one of the most difficult, wow. excruciating experiences. As, <laughs> as we debriefed it, everyone's like, Pastor Dave, why did you do that to us? That was really mean. It was so hard. And that was kind of an invitation For us to kind of observe our tendencies to want to bring resolution to even to things that defy resolution on this side of heaven.
0: Wow, that's a great alertness, uh, awareness exercise. I love that. <laughs> I think we're going to have to use that. So, um, we're almost out of time. So, I wanted oh, to just okay. ask you if you had any any final thoughts um, for us that you'd like to share.
1: Yes. Um, I think. Um, so, I, I think the last, one of the last things I want to mention is that. Um, those of us in our in our church communities that struggle with mental illness, um, they are they are certainly individuals who um, deserve are highly valued by God, created in the image of God, and um, you know we they deserve and uh, care and accompaniment and our energy and time and resources in the church. And oftentimes we think of them as recipients of you know yes. our energy. Yeah. And And uh, as kind of a parting idea, I also want to make the point that we have so much to learn from them as well. Mm. It, It goes both ways. And I have found that those who have a history of struggling with mental illness, those who are presently struggling with mental illness, that on one hand, they have a capacity to, just like any of us, to create much damage and destruction within our communities and at the same time they are actually often some of the most compassionate Mm. gifted individuals that are uniquely attuned to the suffering of others and Mm. just are so gifted in knowing how to accompany and support other people because they have uh Suffered themselves. It's kind of. It takes me back to Second Corinthians one three to four. Like the God is. Uh, talks about how God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us. Uh, right. Uh, right. You know, in our sufferings, so that right. we can comfort others with the sufferings we receive from Christ. And 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 uh, and I found this to be true among people who've mm. uh, uh, who have experienced mental illness. That those uh, they have received. The comfort from God, and mm. they know the process of recovery intimately, and, and oftentimes they are probably the best and most experienced guides for the rest of us to learn from on how to support and accompany people who uh, are experiencing similar situations as well.
0: That's such a good word. I'm reminded of um, Johnny Erickson Tata um, spoke a while back. This really changed uh, changed my thinking around uh, special needs in particular, but mm-hmm. uh, mental illness as well, where she's exactly as you said, Dave, instead of focusing on what can we do for them and mm-hmm. making them the other, um, the focus was on how can they bless your church? And yeah. she said, people with special needs, people with mental challenges, they are a blessing to the church and they will change the heart of your church. Um, yes. And wherever you allow them to just to be, um, they will be a blessing to you. And I never heard it uh, that way ever and this mm-hmm. was like a decade ago and it really like changed my perspective and then being having a special needs ministry seeing the blessing for our church mm-hmm. it really has impacted the heart of our church um, mm-hmm. and grown us in, in love and patience and kindness and all the good stuff that mm-hmm. in ways that we wouldn't if we stayed in in neat messes um you know so i i totally agree i think that that would be huge and we would reflect the heart of jesus so much better
1: <laughs> as yes. well
0: but yes, but it's indeed. hard and it's messy. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So thank you so much for your input. Um, we'll link to to your. Um, your messages, I think that would be cool to listen to as well um, and also um, if people want to see more of what you've done or written, or want to get in touch with you, I know you also have a, a very limited, because uh, you're so busy <laughs> clinical practice, <laughs> as well as some other resources um, on your website it's drdavidcwang.com um, yes. and you can reach out and I guess if people ever if there's any pastors out there who want to be equipped, you can come to um, your, your, what is Viola University's uh, school yes of psychology and then learn from you there as a professor
1: <laughs> I'm yes
0: now i'm thinking maybe this is time for my my second chapter third chapter <laughs> so thank you so much for your time and for the work you're doing um and Aww. it matters so much to the church and such a blessing so Aww. god bless you and your ministry and your family
1: blessings to you too Carolyn.
0: Um, and thank you all for listening to group talk and we will see you next time thank you for listening to here to there part of the group talk network of podcasts If you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you want to learn more,
1: make sure you check out smallgroupnetwork.com for more resources.